Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the OMFIF Podcast. I'm Taylor Pierce, economist at OMFIF. Here with me today is my colleague Neil Williams, chief economist of OMFIF. I think it's fair for me to say that today's topic is a favorite of Neil's, developments in Japanese monetary policy. So welcome, Neil. It's great to have you. Thank you, Taylor. So Japan has had quite a unique economic situation in which some inflation is actually welcome after years of chronically low demand and a deflationary environment. This is a rather different set of concerns than those facing the BOJ's institutional counterparts in the West. But more recently, some tensions have arisen which are putting Japan's monetary arrangements under pressure. Neil, could you start by explaining those factors? Yes, certainly. Well, the tension that has been caused by Japan's monetary arrangements since, what, before Christmas really came as a result of those tighter monetary conditions elsewhere that you mentioned, Taylor, in the US, uh, in the UK, and also especially in the Eurozone, which is now, of course, not just raising rates, but, but getting around to starting its quantitative tightening. In the event, though, it seems to me that uh, even as the Bank of Japan's um, liquidity injections have now passed their 25th consecutive year, the BOJ is unlikely to tighten the monetary policy in lockstep with other central banks until two things are in play. One is that deflation is once and for all beaten. And secondly, that uh, their Ministry of Finance, which, of course, manages the debt, the government debt, can end its reliance on ultra-low bond deals in order to keep its government debt service costs. Now, in my view, neither of these looks likely to happen in the short term. Certainly in the new Bank of Japan governor's five-year term starting on the 9th of April and probably beyond that. In terms of the market tensions that you highlight, I guess it was obvious by three episodes. One in November last year, when the Bank of Japan had to intervene to support the currency, which was weakening. In December, it followed up by raising reluctantly the target it sets on its bond deal, the 10-year Japanese government bond deal, by only 25 basis points. It was under pressure to uh, to do more. The yield is now a maximum of 0.5% for its 10-year yield. And then in the new year, in January, the Bank of Japan not just uh, clung on to this 0.5% cap, but also added liquidity, added extra quantitative easing across maturities. Now, pressure for more will build. But unless coordinated with the other central banks, which seems unlikely while they're raising interest rates, it does seem that uh, Japan's yield target was always going to be tested. So further changes, no doubt, in this year ahead probably will be needed. When will the bulk of those probably will be deferred, in my view, until the new Bank of Japan governor has got uh, his feet under the table uh, after April? The surge in QE under the present governor, Kuroda, who was the architect of yield targeting back in 2016, now leaves the Bank of Japan holding one over one half of Japan's total government bond market. So markets, no doubt, going forward will anticipate a, a slightly less dovish stance. So any changes to the target will be piecemeal. And it seems to me that anything else may have to wait until further this year. Right. So you say you're skeptical that the authorities will allow for wholesale change. Why is that? Yes, I'm expecting the Bank of Japan into the sort of pressures that I mentioned to tweak the the target from time to time. But there will continue to be resistance to any larger wholesale changes that would threaten Japan's ultra-loose monetary condition dependence and low bond deals. There are probably at least three reasons for that. The first one is globally. No doubt as the year progresses, pressure should be reduced on Japan's peg as expectations build that the US, the UK, 
uh, especially have peaked out on policy rates. It no doubt will take the ECB longer to peak out, given that they're what the laggard on quantitative tightening. So some of the pressure may come off anyway. But secondly, the, the Japanese authorities still have every incentive to keep their policy reins loose. Why do I say that? Well, because deflation, looking back, has precluded their nominal GDP from, from passing even its 2008 level. And for a country with the biggest government indebtedness, 250% of Japan's GDP, of course, uh, low inflation or even deflation does little to erode uh, the real value of that. Now, I, I know you're going to say, Taylor, that um, global inflation has picked up and with it taken Japanese consumer price inflation upwards as well, which you would be perfectly correct to say Japan's CPI on the narrow measure has averaged plus 2% since September last year. But the wider GDP deflator, which, which measures inflation pressures across the whole economy, has stubbornly failed to rise. It's averaged minus 0.2% year on year over that period. And it's that GDP deflator, which isn't going up, that's used to measure Japan's debt ratios. The third reason is logistical, and that is in the past, when endorsing a new governor of the Bank of Japan, the government, the Ministry of Finance, have usually advocated a candidate who is still a support of keeping loose monetary policy in place. Mr. Karuda, for example, the current governor, started his career at the Ministry of Finance, and no doubt his replacement is going to be probably like-minded. And of course, behind all that, a weaker yen actually suits the government to a certain extent, because if we're right, our analysis suggests it, it takes up to a full year before a sustained weakness in the yen, at least against the dollar, has its full benefit in terms of Japan's trade surplus. So just on that, what will happen if they are going to tweak with the target? It seems to me that the flip side of that is they're going to have to do even more quantitative easing, purchases of government bonds, uh, to then support that target. The logic or part of the logic is that extending QE and delaying Japan's own short rate rises beyond the asset purchase schemes of the other central banks, will leave domestic institutions, and let's not forget domestic institutions hold the bulk uh, of Japan's government debt, looking for yield overseas and thereby softening the end. So it really does seem that uh, those Bank of Japan officials we spoke to some time ago, Taylor, probably were correct when they conceded that, and this is long before COVID-19, that the Bank of Japan would be the very last central bank to stop running QE. Right, that makes sense. Is this extra QE that you mentioned actually going to help? Well, you know, would it help? Well, looking back over the, the 25 years, which is no short time period, the main benefit really of Japan's QE has been to suppress long yields and therefore control debt service costs. As an anecdote, in the late 1980s, Japan's asset prices ballooned. And one headline I think that uh, certainly I can remember was that at the time, the, the dollar terms valuation of the emperor's palace grounds was in itself higher than the total dollar terms valuation of California's total real estate. So that was unsustainable. From about 1991, asset prices began to tumble. It hurt banks' balance sheets and their collateral, and it spurred economy-wide deflation by the mid-1990s. Now, this prompted banks to write off the loans they had, and the Bank of Japan to step in between 97 and 98 to mop up those banks' commercial paper. And I say that because that's regarded in Japan as being really the forebearer of QE. It's known there as, as QE1. What happened then? Well, since then, of course, the Ministry of Finance became reliant on the Bank of Japan to control its debt service costs. 
And from March 2001, that was the, the main tool used was Japanese government bond purchases, sort of vanilla QE, which we've had since. But its transmission mechanism has been really quite slow. At the time, the Bank of Japan was hoping a sort of for, for a one-to-one trade-off between money growth and that being reflected in GDP. You could say in reflation terms, it's no good throwing money out of a helicopter if no one is going to spend it. And with consumers and firms concerned about unemployment, profit margins and deflation, so-called velocity of circulation was very slow to recover. So what does this mean for the rest of us? Uh, This isn't a sort of neat, interesting synopsis of one large economy. This really, in my view, does have a bearing on the other large, highly indebted government economies that we now have. And here, of course, I'm referring to the US, the euro area and the UK. And, And this relative insensitivity of demand to constant money creation does suggest that the inflation that QE has spawned has been rather more to do with asset prices than passing it to all consumers, in which case the economy stuttered and the central banks carried on and started a a bit of a a vicious circle. So as you can probably guess from my comments, Taylor, uh, these observations do not bode very well for the other high government debt economies like the US, US area and the UK, whose central banks now, I think going forward, will probably struggle to reduce their balance sheets. Their central bank independence already looks blurred. And with the fiscal costs now becoming a growing consideration in the monetary decisions, not just in Japan, but in the US, Euro area, and also in the UK, I just wonder if Japan may still be the best test case we still have. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, definitely sounds like the Fed, Bank of England, and ECB, as you always say, have a thing or two to learn from the Japanese case. Thank you as well to our listeners. And for more analysis on Japan's monetary policy, be sure to check out Neil's commentary, Japan, 25 Years of Adding Liquidity and Counting, which can be found on the OMFIF website. Be sure to also subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are available. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.